1: Last week, as you recall, Will and Dr. Smith were working with a robot on an irrigation project, unaware that within moments they were to encounter the most incredible alien visitor ever to touch down on this strange, forgotten planet.
2: I have completed the assigned task.
3: Good. You may now dig at a 90 degree angle directly toward the hydroponic garden.
2: Instructions computed.
3: Another example of how man has freed himself from toil. We have harnessed the muscle of machines, thus giving ourselves more time for intellectual pursuits.
2: Dad says machines do too much for us.
4: He says it's good to go out and work.
3: Does he indeed? Why walk when it's so much easier to ride? Dr. Smith!
4: We're over here, Dad.
3: Cease your efforts. Give me the shovel at once. Oh, Dr. Smith. I see you've really been hard at it. Oh, yes, indeed. A little physical exercise is so good for one. I see it. But I don't believe it. <laughs> Go away, Major. You irk me.
2: Uh, Don and I will get that pipe for you. You uh you just keep the good work up,
3: huh? Oh, yes, I'll do that, Professor. <laughs>
4: Yes, sir. You fibbed. I did? Dad thinks you dug the ditch.
3: That was an assumption on his part. Never once did I say I was responsible.
2: But you didn't tell him the robot did all the work.
3: Oh, come, come, William. You're making a mountain out of a... Mm. Dr.
2: Smith, are you all right? Dr. Smith, what's wrong?
3: Out of the way, I am being summoned.
1: Dr. Smith?
0: folks for episode 16 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 16th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Keeper, part one. Can you believe it, Kurt? We're over halfway done with the first season of Lost in Space. Wow. Yes, it's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But Kurt, would you also believe, would you believe, We've finally gotten to an episode that I have no memory of. In fact, I don't think I've ever watched this one before. Just kidding. I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah,
4: really. Now, this is actually one of the very first episodes of the early season, the black and white ones, that I distinctly remember as a child. See, I don't think I saw any of those black and whites in syndication. I think I saw those as an original broadcast. And this one, I distinctly remember. I only remember a couple things about it. I remember Michael Rennie. Yeah. And I also remember the multiple monsters. Yeah. So in particular, the very last scene of this part one. So those are the two things
0: I remember about this. Yeah. Well, I've been looking forward to this one for a while, so obviously I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. A few production notes before we begin with the story. The writer for this one was the 42-year-old Barney Slater. This was the third script that he did for Lost in Space. He had previously penned The Sky is Falling and Wish Upon a Star. We mentioned before that Slater would eventually write 22 episodes of Lost in Space, second only to Peter Packer, and this is another good story. In fact, so good that Irwin Allen and Tony Wilson, after reading the first draft, which was originally titled Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, I I really don't get that title, but they asked Slater to expand it into a second episode, making it the only two-parter ever done for Lost in Space. Doing so would hopefully save production costs for a series that had consistently gone over budget and also allow Lost in Space to quickly get started on the show's first of 12 mid-season pickup episodes. The director for this one is Irwin Allen's go-to guy, Soby Martin. He was 56, back for his fourth episode of Lost in Space. We've mentioned before that Martin was not a particularly creative director, but he usually finished jobs on time, and that counted for a lot on a show that was coming close to missing its delivery dates. This is a pretty typical Martin effort from a directing standpoint, and there were even a few shots that looked like they could have benefited from a second take, but it's more than made up for by a strong story, good visuals, and the acting performances. This episode was filmed from the fourteenth through the twenty-second of december, nineteen sixty-five, that is seven days. It aired on Wednesday night, january twelfth, nineteen sixty six, and it did get a summer repeat on may eighteenth, nineteen sixty-six. I should note that Lost in Space faced its first serious ratings challenge from seven thirty to eight o'clock because January twelfth was the premiere of Batman with the Riddler episode Hey Diddle Diddle. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Oh, be still, my beating heart!
0: Sorry. Oh, yes. Another fave, right? Yeah. Batman stole a significant portion of the youth audience from Lost in Space during that half hour. In fact, it came in third to Batman and the Virginian. Luckily, all the kids switched back to Lost in Space at 8 o'clock, and it came in first place, beating both the Patty Duke show and the Virginian for the second half hour. However... The shadow of Batman's cape was going to have more influence on Lost in Space going forward. Holy bat hype. <laughs> I-, I was warned
4: that after this episode, the pressure really started mounting to compete with Batman's campy comedy.
0: Yep, that is correct. All the regular characters are featured. Guest starring in the memorable role of The Keeper was the magnificent 56-year-old Michael Rennie. Of course, Rennie was well known for his iconic portrayal of the alien emissary Klatoo. In the 1951 sci-fi classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Great movie. Yes. He had also previously worked for Allen in the 1960 movie, The Lost World. No comment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was an old friend of Jonathan Harris because they had starred together on the TV series, The Third Man. Harris stated often how much he enjoyed this opportunity to work with Rennie again. Appearing briefly as the lighted alien head in the Keeper's control room was Wilbur Evans, who has very limited screen credits, but was primarily known for his work on Broadway.
4: Now He was quite good, although I'm not sure I'd really want to be known as the uh, go-to guy for alien head.
0: Okay, another no-comment moment. from. (laughs) What?
4: What did I say? I don't get it.
0: Okay. Uh, Stuntman Mike Donovan played the hairy alien monster that scared Dr. Smith in the teaser. He would return in costumes many times later to play other similar creatures on Lost in Space, maybe even wearing the same costume, but we'll get to that later. So, let's get on with the story. Act 1 starts with a teaser, and I really like this one. As usual, the narrator is catching us up. From last week's cliffhanger, we see the robot digging a trench with Dr. Smith and Will watching him work. The robot reports that he has completed his task. Good, says Dr. Smith, and he issues further orders to extend the trench towards the hydroponic garden. The robot computes and understands, so the work continues. And I have to say, it looked like that wasn't the easiest task for Bob May to do in that suit. It looked like it was very difficult. But Dr. Smith looks very satisfied with this kind of work, the kind where he doesn't do any.
4: Yeah, I think Bob could barely see what he was doing because there was only a small amount of sand in each shovelful.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it had to be hard to hold the shovel with those claws, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Smith waxes on to Will about how wonderful it is to see...
4: Another example of how man has freed himself from toil. We've <laughs> harnessed the muscle of machines to free man up for intellectual pursuits.
0: <laughs> yeah, like napping and eating. Will replies, of course, that Dad thinks that machines do too much for us. He says it's good for us to work. Does he Indeed. Why walk when it's much easier to ride? Hmm, my question exactly. But just then Don and John show up and Smith quickly grabs the shovel out of the robot's claws and he proceeds to put on quite a show for the men. And both John and Don are surprised and impressed because this is very uncharacteristic for Smith. He even doubles down by announcing how good it is to get a little physical exercise. Hmm. (laughs) Don says, uh, I see it, but I don't believe it. And Smith replies with a very disdainful look.
4: Go away, Major.
0: You irk me. (laughs) I always love that line. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
4: He delivers it wonderfully.
0: He certainly does. Oh, so the men depart to fetch some pipes that are needed for the irrigation system that Smith's, quote, working on so hard. And as soon as they're out of sight, Smith throws down the shovel, dusts off his hands, and returns to his formerly relaxed state. And he has a real smile of satisfaction on his face. I think he actually enjoyed pulling one over on the guys there. Oh, yeah. He sees that Will's bothered by something and asks what? Will says, you fibbed. You were making them think you were working hard when you were hardly working. And, of course, Smith says, that depends on what the definition of is, is. <laughs> <laughs> or, in this case, what a lie is, because he says, "Why, well, I never claimed that I'd done the work. They just made that assumption. Of course, he never said the robot was doing it either, so, hmm. Yeah, like the old adage, it isn't a lie if you're not caught. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he starts to equivocate further, but just then, the wind starts to blow, and there's this strange cosmic sound effect, and Dr. Smith seems to go into sort of a trance. Uh Uh-oh. Will's worried right away.
4: Out of the way. I'm being summoned.
0: (laughs) And he starts to walk off with his eyes wide open and his arms stretched out in this exaggerated sleepwalking pose. And, you know, Cushman makes a comment that this is an example of Harris interpreting the script in a little more comedic fashion than it's written, and Sobey Martin letting him get away with it. But I do have to admit it makes me chuckle to watch it.
4: Yeah, but, you know, you'll see a much scarier version of that same trance when the children are targeted later on. Spoiler alert.
0: Yeah, that one's scary. Will follows the bewitched Smith through the woods, and he's trying to get him to snap out of his trance, but no luck. Then they come to this clearing, and there are three empty glass cages standing side by side, two larger cages and a little smaller one. Wide-eyed Smith deliberately proceeds to sleepwalk into one of those cages— and as soon as he's inside it, the door closes on him, trapping him. And Will's in a panic. He's banging on that glass door trying to get Dr. Smith to come out. Yeah, these are very cool
4: cages. They have these lights flashing up and down the, the edges. But the doors, they don't just like slam shut or anything. They smoothly slide down. It's a, it's a very creepy
0: and atmospheric
4: uh, action.
0: It really is, yes. It was strange to see that whole thing, but it, it really set the mood. And you know, it's all glass, so I don't even know how they did that. It, you
4: could you could tell there was nothing in the corners doing it. They must have been controlling it from the top or something.
0: Yeah. Well, before Will can do anything to help, there's a loud growl that announces the arrival of a strange, hairy, horned beast with glowing eyes, and he's approaching, and Will has to hightail it out of there so he doesn't get eaten. (laughs) And The beast approaches the cage with Dr. Smith inside, and finally he comes out of his fog, and the first thing he sees is that monster inches from his terrified face with only that sheet of space-age plastic between him and certain death. And the camera is close up on that monster's hideous face, and back to a close-up on Smith and he does one of his hysterical (laughs) signature screams and oh boy
4: (laughs) oh the fear the fear (sighs) yeah no he was very
0: convincing he really was I mean he had a terrified look on his face so but you know for once it seemed totally justified Oh sure, that, I mean the thing was inches from him, it, and it was beating on the cage and trying to get into him. So that would that would scare me if I woke up from a trance and that was the first thing I see—that or a clown, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> so as we go to opening titles, we're left in suspense, wondering what's to become of poor old Doctor Smith. turn from the opening credits, Smith is still screaming inside that cage and the beast is still trying to get to him. Then suddenly, we hear that classic lost in space popping noise. (laughs) It announces the arrival of the star of the show, the Keeper. He's holding some kind of staff in his hand that, at first glance, it appears very ordinary, except it's topped with a billiard-ball-sized sphere. Michael Rennie has this very serious expression on his face. I mean, he almost looks angry, in fact. Then he raises his staff, and that whole staff and the bulb on top of it starts to glow and flash. Right away, Kurt, when Michael Rennie makes that appearance as the keeper, I still get a little tingle up my spine because I really know this is going to be good. What did you think about his appearance?
4: Oh, he's magnificent. He didn't say a single word, but, you know, he didn't need to. He, he would have had me at Clock 2 Barado Nick two.
0: Mmm, indeed. Well, I always thought that he reminded me a little bit of Abraham Lincoln with that beard.
4: Well, that's interesting, yeah, because, you know, he's very distinguished, but later on it kind of reminds me more of the devil. He's got these two little, you might call them like commas, turning almost like fangs hanging off the bottom of his chin. Yeah, turned inward. Yeah,
0: yeah. He, he makes an impression. One of the things I read in the book was they said the script described his costume as like wearing flowing robes, which kind of made me think of Obi-Wan Kenobi, but I kind of liked the outfit that he had. He, he had this like space-age belt, which he was wearing. It was mm-hmm. a really wide belt. I noticed a couple times when the staff is glowing and flashing, the belt also lights up and flashes, so I thought that yeah, was... Yeah, there's,
4: there's a connection, like when he's trying to communicate with like the staff or whatever, but I'm glad they didn't use the robes because that would have been, you know, too Moses like, what with the staff and all and the beard, you know, it would have been weird. That's a
0: good point, yeah. The Keeper's humming staff, obviously like you say, it's a tool that he's using to exert control over the creatures because suddenly that hairy beast just stops trying to break into Smith's cage and he's now under the same spell that Dr. Smith was under and he turns and he steps into another one of the empty cages next to Dr. Smith. The door closes on him and the beast can't kill Smith for the moment at least. Smith calms down now and he's kind of all taking this in. It's a mysterious scene and I really like the music too, the John Williams music that they're playing. It's tracked again for Previous episodes, but it's really good. And the keeper's smiling now. And then, with just another thrust of his staff, the cage with the beast pops out. It vanishes completely. Boop, 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 boop. Yes. So, tell me what you thought about the hairy beast. Did he look familiar to you at all? <laughs> I think everyone got a lot of mileage out of that
4: bare bodysuit. <laughs> it reminds me of a story about a grieving widow who goes to preview how how well the funeral home had dressed up her husband for his funeral. And the undertaker escorts her back into the workroom, and she sees her husband in the coffin wearing a gray suit. And he looks okay, but there's another corpse in another coffin across the room that looks even better in a blue suit. So she says, you know, if it wouldn't be too much of a problem, could you put my husband in a blue suit like that one? And the Undertaker says, sure, and he has her step outside for a couple minutes, and then he pops out and he rolls out the coffin, and now mm. he, the husband's wearing this nice blue suit. She says, that's great, that's great, it's just one thing. How were you able to, to make him change that so quick? And the Undertaker says, oh, it was easy, I just swapped heads. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Irwin uses that same principle on his costumes. He just swaps heads on all these monsters, but they got that same beer suit.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because it looks just like the mutant's bear suit, right? And except yeah. it got a different head. But all right, well. And if you well, later on, we're going to see a whole parade of monsters, and you
4: don't see that bear suit so often because they've only got one of them. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> oh man, well, classic, right? So yeah. next, the keeper then lowers his staff, and he pops out too and vanishes. <laughs> leaving Dr. Smith stuck for the moment in that glass cage. It's interesting that he didn't release Dr. Smith. Right.
4: He didn't, he doesn't care because he doesn't see Smith as a uh, intelligent being. He sees him more as an
0: animal. It seems so. Next, we're back at the Jupiter two and we see John and Don are emerging from the hatch, carrying a load of irrigation pipe for that civil engineering project. I still can't imagine where they're, <laughs> where they're storing all this stuff on board the ship. That seems kind of funny to me, but... Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: Especially long lengths of pipe. (laughs) I
0: know. Just then, an out-of-breath Will rushes into camp, and he's shouting to the men that Dr. Smith's in trouble again. Again. Yeah. So they put the pipes down, and John tells Will to slow down, explain what happened, and he tells him everything. There's the three glass cages, Dr. Smith in a trance, the hairy beast, and everything. And it's funny because John doesn't act surprised at this point. He's really more exasperated. I guess he's seen enough of (laughs) these stories. Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah, if it had been uh, Smith running in or Judy or Penny and they said, Will's in trouble, you have a feeling he would have dropped everything and run. But, you know, with Smith, it's
0: okay, slow down and tell me what happened. <laughs> so uh, he says, I guess you better take us to the cages and let's see what happens. So Will leads him back to the clearing. When they arrive there, There's no beast, and one of the cages is missing. They're all amused at Dr. Smith's predicament, especially Don. Oh, he's loving this. He's seeing Smith as he's always wanted to. And he he even says, you sure look natural in there, Smith.
3: Will, don't just stand there. Get me out of this dreadful contraption. You sure look natural in there, Smith. Doesn't he, Will? Never mind your twisted sense of humor, Major. Release me at once.
2: All right, take it easy, Dr. Smith. We'll get you out. I think this works on an electronic beam. There you go.
3: Oh, thank heaven. Careful, Will. could be dangerous. This is hardly the time for levity. Uh, Dr. Smith, whatever happened to that creature that attacked you when you were in a cage? I haven't the slightest idea. One moment it was fighting to get at me, and the next, nothing. Will, are you sure there were three cages? Yes, sir. Now, just a minute.
2: First, Dr. Smith is put into some sort of hypnotic state. He says he's being called. And then these cages for animals. I strongly object to being called an animal. There's
4: some sort of creature in this cage, John.
3: I wouldn't get too close to that, Don. Gentlemen, I suggest we all return to the Jupiter II at once. You know, I think Dr.
2: Smith is right. Until we know what's going on, I think we'll all be better off at the ship. I'll send the robot back to check the cage out. Maybe we'll find out who owns it and what he wants here. Come on.
0: One of the things I noticed this time, I didn't notice it before, but there was no glass top or a solid top on that cage. It turns out that was not left off deliberately to save money, but it was actually done to alleviate Jonathan Harris's well-known claustrophobia. I guess if he felt like he had an escape through the top, that was something. Oh, man. Yeah.
4: That's that's amazing. I mean, it's one thing to be claustrophobic about being, you know, locked in a coffin or something. But when it's clear glass and you can see all around you, it seems like, you know, some... Serious claustrophobia
0: Although I'm sure it didn't hurt that it also saved them money (laughs) Yes Back inside the ship, Don is still laughing About Smith's temporary imprisonment When the men notice the robot is returning To the ship with a small cage Lizard and all, and Smith's in a panic
4: He'll bring that creature inside the ship If we don't stop him (laughs)
0: So they all go outside and and they want to get a report from the robot. But of course, John has to chastise the robot. You weren't instructed to bring the cage back with you, but neither was I told not to bring it back. When will these guys learn the robot is just like my teenage boys? You have to be very specific with the instructions or or else they'll find loopholes you never dreamed of. Jeez, I'll say. I mean, imagine if you really had to be that specific. Darn it, robot, I told you to protect my daughters, not
4: sleep with them. We were not sleeping. We were wide awake, you know? I mean, this is getting crazy. <laughs> Jeez.
0: Oh boy. (laughs) The men get a rundown on the lizard, who we learn despite Dr. Smith's fears is harmless. In fact, the robot demonstrates how harmless the lizard is by opening the cage and the lizard dashes away. And I thought it seemed to be like maybe pulled by a wire because he really dashed out of that cage really fast.
4: Or they might have used the old carnival trick of the dancing duck. You know, you put a quarter in the machine and it starts to electrify the floor (laughs) so the poor animal starts dancing. Or in this case, you know, it makes a mad dash for it. That was an pt barnum thing yeah oh gosh true
0: story yeah uh, that's that's pretty cruel i'm glad they don't do that stuff <laughs> anymore <laughs> yeah
4: i'm glad they don't do stuff like that on lost his face yeah uh, or else maybe bloop would be gnashing <laughs> Nash- his teeth <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh,
0: anything to collect that money from the tooth fairy <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> The robot reports on the alien cage. It turns out it's a smart cage that can adapt the environment to the kind of creature it traps. They also learn that the cage has a high-frequency sonar to attract creatures based on their genetic makeup. That's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. When they ask who controls the signal, the robot replies, insufficient data. John says, that's all we'll learn from him. And then there's a voice from off-screen that says,
1: Perhaps I can give you some more
0: information. It's the first word spoken by Michael Rennie as the keeper, and then he... Hops into the capsite. <laughs> and of course, he's striking a very commanding presence by now, the rest of the family, except for Judy, have come out to witness this scene. And what's so creepy about this is that we hear his voice before
4: he appears. So it's almost like he's a ghost and he could be there even when you don't see him. So it's really unnerving, because as you'll see later on, he'll start creeping out the family with these repeated appearances out of nowhere, and he'll still be there even after he disappears.
0: Right. He does that trick again and again. It is very off-putting. Of course, he always says, I hope I didn't startle you. Well, You can start by not speaking to us before you appear that would help yeah or after you leave
4: <laughs> yeah if you had that power you might want to not let them know you had it because you know it alerts them
0: that they're never safe from you but i think it was just to kind of creep them out yeah The the keepers, like the NSA, they're always listening. Yeah. So the keeper tells them not to be afraid. He means them no harm. And to prove it, he drives his staff into the ground and leaves it behind as he approaches as a sign of peace. So far, so good. But when he draws near, he notices that Will is disturbed by something and he asks, What's wrong? And Will points back in amazement because the keeper's pulsating staff has sprouted foliage and blooms. And that's quite a trick.
4: Yeah. And obviously, you know, he intended to do it. So he's putting on (laughs) a little show for these guys.
0: Yes. But it's a clever way of demonstrating his power in in sort of like a carnival trick way. But... uh,
4: Oh, what's this? Did this do this again? Oh, (laughs) how about that?
0: Yes. Keeper says, why, that's the second time today he forgot to turn it off. And he turns it off with a wave of his hands. And then he picks up a bouquet from that deactivated staff and returns to the group and he offers the flowers to Mrs. Robinson. The Keeper mentions that there's no need for them to introduce themselves because he already knows them all. But how? And I like his answers he said
1: you're not alone in space all the planets have eyes for a primitive people you have done well here my dear sir i resent the word primitive we are highly civilized i will not argue the point dr smith let us both be satisfied with our opinions i will introduce myself i am known as the keeper and i come from a world 10 million light years away
2: is the keeper your name or just a title
1: well, that is a profession i collect the creatures of the universe two of every kind You wish to ask me something, Will. You want to know how I learned to speak your language, is that correct? Yes, sir. Your planet has been communicating with its astronauts for years. I merely recorded the speech patterns and broke down the words phonetically.
3: I see that you also read minds.
1: The boy's mind was easy to read because his thoughts are pure. The adult mental process is too complex,
0: however. It's it's a it's a nice way of putting it, and I like the way that Rennie was playing the part here. He's not smirking, he's not frowning. He has just this very slight knowing smile on his face that it, it implies he's a superior being, yes, but he appreciates what the Earthlings are for what they are, and he seems to. Read Will's mind and answer the unspoken question, how the Keeper can speak their language. And his answer makes sense. He says, I've been monitoring Earth transmissions over the years, and I've been able to phonetically analyze and decipher it. And I think, again, this is something that Lost in Space should get credit for. They're taking the time to answer this obvious question that a lot of more serious sci-fi shows never bother to do.
4: Yeah, but on the other hand... It does seem like a lot of work for him to do all that if he had no previous interest in collecting humans. It might have been easier for him to just say, well, you know, I could read minds and therefore I know what words to say that you will understand. But, you know, I I will not argue the point. Let us both be satisfied with our own opinions.
0: Everyone seems very impressed with the Keeper, and I certainly was too. And then the Keeper's pleasant demeanor changes, and he asks Professor Robinson,
1: Are you in the habit of taking other people's property, Professor Robinson? This cage belongs to me. The robot brought your cage here by mistake. We would have returned it. And the creature that was in it too, I suppose? Well, perhaps, sir, if you had revealed yourself to us and let us know what you were doing, uh, none of this would have happened. I do not announce my
3: arrival or reveal my plans to anyone. It would save a lot of worry and headaches if you did. We'll get your lizard back for you.
1: There's no need to bother. You children had better cover your ears. This might affect you. You too, Dr. Smith, you're already susceptible.
0: The music grows ominous, the wind begins to blow, and the tumbleweeds start to roll across the campsite, and the keeper uses his staff to call the lizard back to his cage. Originally, according to the script, we were supposed to see the lizard crawling back into the cage the same way Dr. Smith crawled into his cage and the hairy beast walked into his cage. But to save time, Sobe elected to have it simply popped back in and that was probably a good time-saving measure even if it was a little bit of a continuity change you know
4: oh i'll say good luck trying to train a lizard to crawl back into a cage your seven-day shooting schedule would have been seven
0: weeks mm, that, that would have been difficult yeah
4: yeah, the reptiles do not train easily. Trust me on that.
0: The keeper appears very satisfied with his returned creature, but before he leaves, he remarks ominously that their planet is inhabited with many species of life, some harmless like the lizard, others not. Before he and his property pop out of the camp and back to his ship, he advises that they will have other opportunities to meet in the future.
4: You know, one thing I just wanted to interject: you may have noticed, and it should be pretty obvious at this point, is that this character does have. Of one major flaw he is extremely arrogant you know he just he looks down on everyone else and, and th- that comes through over and over again and it, it'll explain a lot to how he could be so dispassionate
0: towards the earthlings later on because he just doesn't respect them as intelligent beings right right Next, as the act draws to a close, we're inside the dark control room of the Keeper's ship. And as far as these limbo sets go, this is a pretty good one. I noticed some familiar alien props the jello moles, the flashing Christmas tree lights, and there was an extra bonus this time, Kurt. Your favorite the Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well the atmosphere is helped certainly by the creepy music and that's track ironically enough from the day the earth stood still by bernard herman and that track in particular is titled Klaatu. so i thought that was particularly appropriate
4: well, that's one of my favorite uh, all-time soundtracks. But, uh, you know, one theme I never hear in Lost in Space, which is my favorite one from The Day the Earth Stood Still, and that's the Gort theme, you know. No, nah, nah, nah. You know, and it's just like, whoa. But I think it's so recognizable that that's why they like not to use it.
0: I'm pretty sure that that one gets used in a later episode, but I, I don't oh, quote be, me on that. That would be way cool. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think that one's used in The War of the Robots. It's oh, the, good. Okay. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure, but I, I, I'll certainly know by the time we get to that one because I got that soundtrack and I love it too. So the Keeper uses his staff to establish communication with this very serious looking bearded alien head that we talked about before. Alien head. Stop with it. The...
4: <laughs> no comment.
0: Yeah. he And he was very human looking. Both of them are actually very human looking, but... Even though he's just a simple bearded guy, the shadows on his face give you a pretty creepy vibe. And I also had the impression that this was some kind of a hologram or a projection. I didn't really see a screen there. It was just like the the image of the head was against a black background.
4: Yeah, you know, the whole thing reminded me a lot of the uh, uh, Lord Vader speaking to the Emperor's hologram, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You wish to communicate? I do. Then proceed. You know, it was great. (laughs) It was. I loved it. I, I was really impressed with that.
0: Yeah, that was cool. The Keeper tells his alien colleague that he's made contact with some, quote, animals from the planet Earth that would make interesting additions to their collection. Now, I don't know about you, but just that phrasing, animals from Earth, made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I mean,
4: oh Yeah, see, that's what I'm talking about. He's so arrogant, he just doesn't recognize him. And what's so weird about it is, you know, did we forget to mention this guy is completely humanoid. He looks just like a human. He doesn't look different at all. He's not a different skin color. He doesn't even have have the famous, you know, gold colored skin or silver skin that they do later on when they try to make a human look like some sort of alien without spending any money on it. He looks just like us. So it's really weird that he can speak our language and talk to us and yet he just thinks he's so far above us.
0: Yeah. That it's essentially a whole different species. He's told by the big giant head <laughs> to gather two specimens and return with them. The keeper agrees, but he mentions that the humans live by reason as well as instinct, so his staff only has the power over the very poor specimen, Dr. Smith. There are also two children, although he's reluctant to use the staff on the children for "quote fear of damaging them. And again, it's that antiseptic language and like you said, it lets us know he's viewing them from the perspective that we might look at a rare species of rabbit. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's really something. Before we go to commercials, the keeper ends his call home by ominously saying he may be able to, quote, collect the children through other means. Hmm.
1: Boston in Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: When we return from the break to start Act 2, Don and Judy are in the hydroponic garden, and the scene starts with Judy saying she's glad she wasn't there to meet the Keeper because she wouldn't like anyone who locks animals up in cages. I thought that was interesting. That's a little bit of modern concern for the well-being of animals, but... uh, Yeah,
4: apparently she doesn't care too much for Penny. I mean, (laughs) Penny collects animals
0: every chance she gets. (laughs) And then John just shoots them in sight, you know. (laughs) Yeah. What happened to all these
4: ostriches? Oh, my stomach. Oh.
0: (laughs) Don mentions he felt the Keeper was looking at the castaways as if they were bugs under a microscope. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All that Keeper talk is bringing the mood down, so he suggests that they change the subject. And Judy suggests her favorite subject. She says, me! (laughs) Me! (laughs) <laughs> and hey, she
4: has a lot in common with all the other women, I think. Uh,
0: she's ready to play a game that no man can win. Do you notice anything different about me? Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, I have definitely learned the hard way Unless you're 100% sure You already know the answer to this question Do not venture into this minefield blind There's no good answer there But Don does his best with a fallback He says, "Uh, uh, no sweetie, you look great as always Besides, I'm too stupid to notice The wonderful new thing about you dear But as soon as you tell me what it is I know I'm going to love it (laughs) In this case, the big reveal is that She's wearing her hair differently Well, that was obvious not, but she's not done toying with Don, because as soon as he says, well, I love it, her smile disappears, and she says, I hate it. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. He should have known. He calms her down by saying he was wrong. We can tell what the whole point of this game was, because as soon as he does say that, her frown turns to a smile, and all is well. So there you go, guys. The right
4: answer is that you're wrong, and they're right.
0: Just remember that, and you'll be
4: okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Suddenly, we hear the humming sound of the keeper's staff, and he pops into view, and he looks deadly serious, but then he softens as he greets Don and Judy. Don's trying to comfort Judy, who's clearly startled and frightened by the keeper's sudden appearance, but that's just the beginning. The keeper compliments them, calling them, quote, handsome specimens. Don says, well, I wish you wouldn't refer to us as specimens. We're intelligent beings. And the keeper smiles, replying that you're entitled to your opinion. And then he makes a little pitch, a little offer to the couple. He asks them to voluntarily join his collection of animals. But of course, they'd have everything they desire in exchange for their willingness to go with him. He adds, they don't have to make a hasty decision. But Don says their final answer is not only no, but... No, the Keeper isn't put off because just before he pops out, he says, Think about it some more. You wouldn't want to make a wrong decision. After he's gone, Judy asks Don what he meant by wrong decision. Before Don can answer, we hear the voice of the Keeper, just like we talked about before, saying, Exactly what I said. (laughs) Think about it, my dear. That was really creepy.
4: Yeah, like I said, he can still be there even when you don't see him. So he really is starting to feel like the devil here. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Next, we're outside at the dinner table as Judy is finishing telling the others, minus Will and Penny, about the Keeper's ghoulish offer.
2: He just came right out and asked us to go with him. What was his reaction when you refused to go? He wasn't angry, sort of strange, as if he knew something we didn't. Or maybe he was joking.
3: Well, if he was, he has a morbid sense of humor. Seeing you caged like a monkey does have its amusing aspects. The primate is considered one of the higher forms of life, Dr. Smith. When the keeper wants the insect variety, he'll get in touch with you. All right,
2: that's enough squabbling out of you two for one day. I don't think the keeper means us any harm.
3: Why, because he uh, he gave you those flowers? Oh. (laughs) Beware of strangers bearing gifts, I always say.
2: Oh, Dr. Smith, you always suspect the worst of everyone. Now, if the keeper had really wanted to take Don and Judy, he wouldn't have asked them to go with him.
3: There are seven of us to contend with, dear lady. We represent a formidable group against just one.
2: I thought the Keeper only collected animals.
3: Maybe that's what he considers us. Speak for yourself, Major. However, enough of this. I have a brilliant idea to propose. Just suppose that the Major and Judy accept the Keeper's ridiculous offer, but with one stipulation. And what's that? That in return, the Keeper first takes us all back to Earth. That's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant, Smith. For once, you're correct. All we need to do is to have the Keeper allow us to come aboard his spaceship. As I said before, there are seven of us. It would be a simple matter.
2: No. Absolutely no.
3: I understand your objections, Mrs. Robinson, but sometimes violence is a necessity.
2: Well, Dr. Smith, no matter how much I want to get off this planet, I won't resort to violence to do so.
3: In this situation, the end more than amply justifies the means. Well, not to me it doesn't. And unless I'm badly mistaken, not to anyone else at this table.
2: Now that concludes the matter.
4: But, you know, Smith doesn't seem to realize that the Keeper is probably monitoring this entire conversation. You say, if it wouldn't work. Well, that's one reason it wouldn't work, you know. Yeah. The Keeper almost seems obsessed with
0: getting the humans. Right. Right. Next, we're back at the work site for the irrigation system. Once again, the robot's doing all the heavy lifting as Smith comes into view, and the robot reports that they're 40% done with the pipeline, which draws nothing but scorn from a frowning Dr. Smith.
4: When I want a statistical report, I'll ask for it.
0: (laughs) Unasked, the robot again reports that by his computation they'll be finished by 1400 hours, and this causes Smith to threaten his computers with a concussion with that solar wrench he has in his hand. And it's interesting, though. Smith does actually seem to be doing work here for a change. I mean, he's actually getting his hands dirty. Just then, Will and Penny walk up and wish Dr. Smith a good morning and he replies,
4: It is morning, but its goodness escapes me.
0: Mm. Well, they ask why he's in such a grouchy mood, and he says he's profoundly disappointed that the parents are refusing to take advantage of their opportunity to leave this bleak and barren wasteland of a planet. They already know that Smith wants to trick the Keeper, and they don't approve any more than the parents do because it's dishonest, and that makes no impression on Smith at all. He he tells the children to go away. <laughs> you oak me. <laughs> leave him in his misery.
4: So they do. I thought it was kind of funny that the robot complained that he will blow a computer tube in his miscalculation. Did you hear that? Yeah, When if they don't get the uh, pipeline finished in time. Yeah. yeah. So apparently in the Lost in Space universe, we master interstellar spaceships and advanced robots by 1997, but we
0: fail to invent transistors or IC chips. You know, it's kind of weird. <laughs> I have to... uh, will and Penny leave Smith to his toils, and they're off to hunt for special rocks. <laughs> and Will reminds Penny, quote, for the 50th time that not just any rock will do, he wants the special ones. And they start tapping with their little uh, pickaxes on a boulder when suddenly from nowhere, boop, 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 boop. Ah, no, but this time without a pop. Oh, okay. He just appears from behind the rock and he's right Snap, in front crackle, of-
4: crackle, no pop. Okay, gotcha.
0: Exactly. It startled me and Will and Penny are unnerved at first, but they recover their composure. And again, Rennie's expression is great because he really- really does have that look like he's looking at an animal, but then Will says they were concentrating on their work or they'd have heard him. And he says, yes, I'm sure the young have very sharp ears. Mm. <laughs> and Will asks the keeper if he's hunting for new specimens, and he <laughs> He says, in a matter of speaking, and Penny says, well, if you're looking for new specimens, you must have some cages nearby. And he says, oh, some creatures don't require cages.
4: Oh, man, he really is beginning to act like the devil at this point, especially since we know what he has up his sleeves. And you just want to, you know, scream at them, run, kids, run, you know. Oh, I
0: know. Yeah. So he continues to draw the children into his confidence, and he allows Will to hold his staff. And Will's very impressed by this, especially because he says it's so lightweight. And he says, yes, it's made of weightless matter, and it uses stored cosmic energy to exert its powers. Both Penny and Will are now excited because the Keeper lets Will charge it by raising it to the sky, and it draws a bolt of lightning from the heavens. That cosmic lightning strikes the top of the staff, but it causes no harm to the kids. Will asks how he did that, and the Keeper says, In my world will, the powers of nature are the servants of the people, not the masters. And they'll talk about the miracles of science later. Now he's planned a day of enjoyment for them. He offers to take them to his ship to see his collection of animals. And they seem reluctant at first, but he entices them with all these great descriptions, you know, singing butterflies, laughing frogs, creatures from every planet in the galaxy, and it's just too much for them to resist. So they agree, and they start to depart to the Keeper's ship. Like you say, I'm starting to really get scared for them. I'm saying the same thing you're saying. Run, run, because this is just like Hansel and Gretel, you know, unable to resist the witch's house of candy.
4: Exactly. In fact, I was I was telling my little girls as they watched this, I said, see, this is what kidnappers act like. They are really friendly and tempt you with candy and all sorts of promises until they can grab you and steal you away. Never let a stranger
0: get close to you when you're alone. Right. Sheesh. Yes. Yes. On the way to the ship, Penny starts to have second thoughts. No one knows that they're going to his ship, but he's ready with an answer. Oh, don't worry, you can call back to the Jupiter-2 over my communication device. Then, before they can offer any more objections, he announces there's another specimen nearby. And this really excites them. The keeper asks if he should use his staff and call it, and of course they say yes. So once again, he raises the staff, it flashes, the wind blows, and before the creature appears, though, we cut back to the worksite, and Dr. Smith has been affected yet again by the siren call. He stiffens, he rises, he starts sleepwalking again towards the staff. I must go, I'm being summoned. Mm. Now one thing I noticed here, though, is the kids never covered their ears, or did I miss that? Oh, no, that was a good call. It's a really weird continuity error, but, you know, this is such
4: a great episode, who cares? But I I love seeing those little
0: things. Yeah. So we cut back to the Keeper, and the creature finally appears, and we see that it's like, for lack of a better words, it looks like a miniature unicorn to me, because it looks like a Shetland pony with a fake horn on its head. I mean, what did you think?
4: Well, actually, that was a real unicorn. It was. That was the very last one of its kind, but they had to amputate the horn after it scratched
0: one of the cast members by accident. <laughs> A real bummer. <laughs> Darn. Yeah. Well, as an interesting side story, since you bring it up, someone on the staff had suggested that that unicorn would make another great pet for Penny alongside little Debbie. But apparently the production had already had too many issues with animal performers causing difficulties and delays. So the story goes that Irwin threatened to have that person who came up with the idea shot, you know, Time is money, after all. <laughs> so no unicorn pets for Penny. We'll run him through with the unicorn horn. That'll teach him. <laughs> but, you know, this brought up another point. I may have missed it, but in an episode that's all about animals and creatures, where's the bloop? I don't think the bloop is ever shown in this episode, yeah, or did I miss it? Yeah, yeah. Why didn't he, climb, you know,
4: why wasn't he walking out of the spaceship with his arms up also?
0: They must yeah, have put him in a freezing tube as soon as they found out that the, <laughs> the keeper could call animals or something. But
4: Well, I, I, well I'll grant him this, you know, I didn't think of that, and you just seem to have thought of that just now. So for 99% of the audience, it, they were correct to assume we won't notice.
0: Well, I think the answer is they were already over their budget for animal performers for this episode, so they had to give Debbie the day off. But- yeah the kids are delighted when they see the unicorn they run over to pet it Will says I wish I had one and the keeper seals the deal by offering to give the kids one but he says not this specimen he has a smaller one at the ship that will make a much better pet oh man so they've forgotten all their worries now and Will says what are we waiting for let's go yeah keeper's delighted as well I mean he has snared them hook line and sinker so then we go for a second cut back to Dr. Smith who's trudging along apparently still under the spell of that staff and then the three come around a rock and they pause and the keeper stops and he briefly points towards his ship which is just ahead and we cut to a it looks like a matte painting or some kind of an artwork i don't think it was a model but when we get that look of the keeper's ship i thought that was pretty cool what did you think of it
4: oh wow i mean i'm gonna have to buy a new dvd player i kept this one on pause so long watching that scene. It was great.
0: It's a very interesting design and it was really hard to get an exact idea of the scale because it's, you know, it's shown sitting in the desert with some rock formations behind it. But it's essentially looks like a ring or a wheel with three spokes and and three landing gear struts coming down. And there's this central hub that extends all the way down to the center. And that central hub at the base of it is basically what we're going to get to see up close. It's the set where the entrance to the ship is. I thought it was really well done though. And if there's a picture of that in the book, so I could study it. They did a nice job because there's even some shadowing on the ground. Well, you know, what's amazing about it
4: is They spent some time to do that. You know, it must have cost them some significant money to do that painting. And it's only on the screen for like one or two seconds, you know? Right. They're going to show these monsters at the end doing their little parade. And that scene's going to last for like 15 or 20 seconds. And they're going to repeat these monsters over and over and over again. But they never repeat this scene, even when other people are coming across the ship. It's kind of strange. I mean, you would have thought they could have squeezed in two more seconds. But, you know, it was beautiful. And another interesting thing that was beautiful about this is that they actually incorporated the design of the outside of the ship with the inside of the ship. When we get on the interior, you, you'll see that it actually accommodates those three outward spokes, mm-hmm. which you know, they rarely, rarely do that with Lost in Space. Right. So this is a very nice touch. So that was really cool.
0: Well, I definitely wanted more keeper ships, so they didn't, they didn't give it me enough of that. To...
4: I'm just glad we got what we got, though. That was good.
0: True. As the act comes to an end, the three continue towards the ship in one of those rare tracking shots for this episode, followed by another quick cut of the Enchanted Smith following some distance behind. And Will makes a comment that it's the biggest spaceship he's ever seen. And that's pretty impressive considering how large the Derelict was. So when we get to that central hub, we can see that it's the entrance of the ship and there's a ramp leading up to it. Before we go to the commercial break, the three pause again at the ramp, Penny voices one final doubt, asking Will if they should really go inside. But Will's not worried. He says, I don't think it'll hurt to take a quick look around. And the keeper says, my feelings exactly. And Penny gives in. She says, okay, but just for a little while. With his eyes wide open in anticipation, the keeper nods in agreement. Of course, just for a little while. So in they go. But no sooner do they cross the threshold than that huge hatch slides down, trapping the children inside the keeper's ship. And we're left to wonder what fate awaits them on the other side of this commercial break.
4: Wow, of all the scary breaks, this is the most frightening, uh, probably because it's every parent's worst nightmare. You know, it really is.
0: Turn from the commercial. The children are inside the keeper's control room. Penny is frightened because we're hearing but not seeing some vicious animal noises. And the keeper explains it's one of his specimens, but there's no danger, even though they're standing right on top of his cage. Mm -hmm. He also adds, "I'd show him to you, but there's some things upon which the eyes should not
4: look." So that's (laughs) yeah, that's yeah, that really uh, sends all the synapses firing. You're going, "Whoa, are we going to see this later on?"
0: I noticed he seems to be enjoying their reactions. I I don't know that it's really in a sadistic way. It's more like he's studying their reactions. He assures them that the creature can't escape, and then he proceeds to take them on a guided tour of his ship to see some more pleasing animals. First, he opens a door to a passage that's filled with various cages. He says they're holding hundreds of different bird specimens, and we hear them squawking and chirping and everything. We don't get to see the birds, but we just see the cages. Then he opens a passage containing cages filled with carnivores. We get to hear growls of the carnivores and everything, and we're shown another view of a quarter that's lined with cages going out into infinity, and I think that was probably like a forced perspective backdrop or something. It was simple, but it was effective. Will wants to look at those carnivores, and I did too, but the keeper says, oh, no, 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 later. First, let me show you some animals that live more peacefully. And he opens a third passage, and this time they actually walk inside to get a closer look. And there's some cages there, and he says, what do you think of this animal? And at first, it's empty. And then this weird kind of like toad or lizard creature appears. It's not the iguana, though, this time. This is something that really does look alien. But there was only one of them. Penny asks, I thought you had two of everything. And he says, the female is shy. She's less brave than the male, which is as it should be. And he even giggles at his joke.
4: Yeah, he's referring to Penny there.
0: Uh (laughs) Then he shows them another cage. This creature was really, I have to give them credit. This was a really exotic and weird looking creature. And the keeper says, this one has wings but doesn't fly. It has teeth but doesn't eat it it does nothing basically it exists, but how and why is a mystery. So I think the creature makers did a pretty good job with those little guys and i I'm assuming that they were puppets because I don't really remember seeing them before or after that I recall. Did they look familiar at all to you?
4: No, but they were very creative and atmospheric and you know keep in mind this is long before Jim Henson and the Dark Crystal, but every bit is cool. Did you stop to consider, though, that those three long corridors that we just looked down represent the three spokes of the craft that I talked about earlier? Yes. It wasn't, it wasn't perfect because, you know, they seem to be on the same floor as the entrance to the ramp, you know, which because later on when they go outside, you're going to see that ramp open and you'll see the light laying on the, the wall. To make it correct, you know, those spokes should have been several stories up. But even though that part isn't perfect, those three halls do line up with those three spokes in, in the uh, the outside craft. So it was a really nice tip of the hat to matching the outside with the inside and all those sliding doors and the endless Mm -hmm. hallways, they were very impressive. The entire ship was
0: right. Then he opens another door, which leads to, quote, his masterpieces. And before we get to see those masterpieces, though, we cut back again to Dr. Smith, who's still heading towards the Keeper's ship. And he's still under the control of the staff for some reason, although the Keeper is not really using the staff at that point. So that seemed a little bit odd to me.
4: Well, not as odd as the kids hearing it and ignoring it, as you noticed earlier.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Back inside the ship, the kids come across two large cages that Penny observes are empty. Oh, he hasn't found the right specimens for them yet. And here's another Hansel and Gretel moment. He invites them to take a closer look and go ahead, step inside the oven. I I mean the cage.
4: (laughs) Follow me, follow me, into the cages we go. (laughs) This all seemed a bit unbelievable. I mean, these were glass cages. You know what they do, you know what they're for. I mean, what's the fascination with them? I mean, you you can see everything from the outside as much as you can see on the inside. Who in their right mind is going to want to step inside one, especially when you know the zookeeper is there to collect aliens? And he didn't let you contact your parents like he promised that he was going to do when you arrived there. So, all that being said, the the tension is very high even though it's a little bit contrived. We're still sitting
0: there going, "No, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the funny thing was, Will seems ready to walk in. You know, Will was the one that actually saw Dr. Smith get trapped in the cage before, so you'd think he would be the most mm-hmm. suspicious and the most reluctant to do it. But Penny stops him before he steps inside. They don't want to go in, even though the keeper says it's perfectly safe, and this makes the keeper angry. And then he starts to, like, order them. I said, get in the cages, but instead they make a run for it. Will must have learned something when he was inside that invader ship because he wastes no time. He runs right over to the jello molds and he waves his hands across them and the hatch opens up and Penny and Will quickly dash out of the ship but the keeper is on their heels before they can get too far away he raises his staff and starts to flash and hum again and his belt is glowing all of a sudden the kids they just stop dead in their tracks and then they slowly turn around and they start to walk back towards the ship and they have this really weird mesmerized expression on their faces and that indicates to me they are totally under the keeper's control the expressions they
4: give are more than just a trance. They are wide-eyed and welcoming of their fate, like victims of a vampire, you know, that they must, they not only must obey it, they mm. want to obey it. Right. So it's, it's not comic at all like Smith's trance was. This is downright scary. They really deserve credit for their portrayal. And they're, it, they're, it's almost identical. The two of them move in identical moves. So I don't know if they practice this or what, but I mean, it's, it's like a ballet almost. It's really cool.
0: Yeah, well he says something too He says, I guess you've changed your minds about leaving And they apologize and say Oh, they want to stay with him forever And he says, so you shall And I remember this was very disturbing to me as a kid Because it really bothered me That they wanted to come back to him And it was just exactly what parents say Don't talk to strangers, you know Yeah, but
4: for you, at that time It was from the other end of the spectrum You're sitting there going This is like a kid's worst nightmare An adult could tell you to... To do something and you have to do it and you want to do it you know what could be worse <laughs> than that what if that person's the principal who's telling you to do your homework clean your room <laughs> i will i want yeah. to i shall obey
0: So the keeper thinks he's got it made now and he starts to usher the children up the ramp back into his ship. But just then, Dr. Smith is finally caught up with them and he's still in a trance and he calls after the keeper to wait for him. He doesn't want to be left behind and the keeper turns around and he's annoyed by the interruption but Smith keeps walking right towards him. He winds up bumping into the keeper and drops his staff, which breaks the spell and suddenly both Smith and the kids come out of their fog and the kids take that chance to dash back to camp before the Keeper can stop them. Smith starts to apologize for the accident, but the Keeper isn't amused.
3: I'm terribly sorry, sir, really. It was definitely an accident. I I don't know how I got here, but I'm glad I came. I want to talk to you, sir. What could you say that would be of interest to me? How would you like to add some new animals to your collection? Are you referring to members of the Robinson Party? Certainly not, sir. I assure you, they are a very poor selection, indeed. But it's an entirely different story on Earth. The planet literally swarms with all sorts of strange creatures. Yes, I'm beginning to realize that. Take me back to Earth, sir, and I promise you all kinds of animals, both two- and four-legged.
1: It's a long journey to your planet Earth, Dr. Smith. Most of my specimens would not survive such a trip. Perhaps I shall go there on my next exploration. And when will that be? Two, three hundred years, perhaps. Oh,
3: I'm afraid I can't wait that long. Are you sure you won't change your mind? Well, let me know if you do. I'll see you again soon.
4: Yes, you will, Dr. Smith. And sooner than you think. Oh yeah, he says that when Smith is gone, so he's saying it to himself, you know, which makes Mm -hmm. it all the
0: more, I know something you don't, it's very devilish. Indeed. Later that night, we're back inside the ship, and the kids and Smith are explaining to the others what happened. Penny says, the keeper seemed real nice at first, until he wanted to force us into the cage. Yeah.
4: He <laughs> so, you all very, very sweet until he tried to put me in the oven, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's very worrying, to be sure, and John sends him to bed, and Smith follows shortly, claiming that he's yet again completely exhausted from his exertions. Judy says goodnight as well, and then the men decide that as long as the children and Smith are susceptible to the Keeper's power, they'll have to be kept inside the ship, locked in their cabins for the night. Then we get another scene of comedy as Don tries to get Dr. Smith to go into his cabin, and Smith puts up a fight because he's not a child, which is a laugh because then he starts to act just like a child. I mean, he even, like, holds his breath, (laughs) you
4: know? Yeah, you know, again, he's the man-child, and that's why this staff has effect on him.
0: (laughs) Next, as the act comes to a close, we see a tired and bored Don sitting outside the locked cabins on the lower deck. John comes to relieve him on watch, and after Don retires, we hear a faint sound from outside. John hears a noise from inside Will's cabin. He opens the accordion door, and Will is wide awake, asking to go for a walk. He's being summoned, obviously, by the Keeper's staff. John locks him back inside, and then Penny tries to do the same thing. John opens her door prevents her from leaving as the music swells before we go to break it's no surprise when we cut outside the jupiter tube to see the keeper standing in the dark right outside doing his best to kidnap will and penny he was like dracula summoning his victims outside the window Mm -hmm.
4: i thought it was interesting that john didn't seem to hear the outside hum though just the sounds of the kids inside their cabins and those wide-eyed expressions of the kids were very disconcerting. Like they would, they would actually walk off a cliff if they were told to do so. Mm-hmm.
2: Harvey, want anything special for your birthday? Just a decent cup of coffee. You're kidding. I'm serious. Honey, your coffee's undrinkable. Pretty harsh. Well, so's your coffee. You know, the girls down at the office make better coffee on their hot plates. Well, see you later. And he didn't even kiss me goodbye. You know, if I could just make a decent cup of coffee, I could relax. Oh, so, relax. Why don't you try Instant Folgers? Tastes good as fresh perked. Good as fresh perked? I'll surprise Harvey for his birthday tonight. Hey, great coffee. It's Instant Folgers. Doesn't it taste good as fresh perked? better. Better than those girls make at the office.
1: Honey, their coffee can't hold a candle to yours. Instant Folgers taste good as fresh perked. Try it.
0: When we return from the break to start Act 3, it's the next morning. Marine emerges from the ship to speak with Don and Judy. The kids are fine now, just eating breakfast, and John is sleeping after his graveyard shift on watch. Don's off to work on the irrigation system, so things should be okay with the kids for the time being because the robot is on guard duty to make sure nothing happens to them. Then we cut to Will's cabin. Both the kids are locked inside. He's been passing the time by making a slingshot, and since our attention is being drawn to Will's new toy, this is sure to be important later. Marine then checks on Smith, who's also in a good mood, Then we cut back to the keeper's ship. He's standing outside the entrance holding his staff out yet again trying to call those children back to those waiting cages and he has a very determined look on his face. We cut back to the kids and they do start to be affected by its siren call again. Penny gets this dazed expression. She drops her book. Will drops a slingshot as well, And then Will does something we haven't seen him do for a while. He uses his Dr. Smith voice to order the robot to let them out. It strangely works on his mechanical friend, even though Will's silted voice doesn't really sound nearly as Smith-like as it was on previous occasions when he pulled that trick.
4: Yeah, it seemed a little unrealistic, but so yeah. was the part that their mom was in the very next cabin with a sliding accordion door and didn't seem to hear any of the stuff going on, you know. You would have thought she would have at least heard him talking, you know, calling for the robot, but
0: he didn't. Yeah. Penny and Will slowly walk out of the cabin, then climb the ladder to the upper deck. After they depart out of sight, Marine finally comes out and she discovers them missing. And she, she wakes John up for help and he checks their rooms and he finds the slingshot. And for some reason, he decides to take it along with him when he's going to go look for the children. I wondered why.
4: Yeah, well, I can answer that. As a loving father, if either of my daughters were to scare me like that by disappearing, I'd need that slingshot in order to strangle them.
0: Yep. So John tells Marine to call Don back on the radio and tell him to get back to the ship. He'll get Dr. Smith, who's lying wide-eyed on his bunk. And at first, I thought he was back under the spell because he had that expression on his face. But for once, he's not been affected by the staff because we learned that he's put earplugs in to block those hypersonic waves. John shanghai Smith lead the men back to the Keeper's ship. They depart with their laser rifles, with John assuring Marine and Judy not to worry. But I'm worried because when we cut back to the Keeper, he's still working that that staff with all of his powers of concentration and he appears pleased as the children emerge from the rocks into the clearing where his spaceship is located he's just about to get them back on board and he greets them I've been waiting for you this is really where it gets disturbing again they reply they would have come sooner but they wouldn't let us but we got away Ugh, that's really disturbing
4: but you know you haven't mentioned the cutaway shots of Don and John chasing after the kids I say chasing with air quotes because they're basically walking just a little bit faster than the kids were in their trance. Now, that was arguably the most unrealistic part of this entire episode. You know the alien wants to kidnap your kids. You know your kids are missing. And you know he plans on taking them a million light years away. And they're under his spell heading to their ship and all you're doing is walking? You know, I won't argue the
0: point. Let us both be satisfied.
4: Well, no, actually, I will argue the point. This is just crazy.
0: <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, they should either have been running or they should have gotten in the chariot or the jetpack or something to cut the <laughs> cut the yeah. distance, you know, because the kids have a head start on them. But.
4: If it had been Dr. Smith, I can understand. But this is his two favorite little kids, so, you know. Mm
0: yeah the men arrived just in the nick of time but Smith is now back under the control of that staff again they try to prevent him from joining the children but it's no use he ignores their shouts to come back and he walks right up on that ramp alongside the kids and he turns to face Don and John
2: Smith! get back here Smith! get back here Smith you know what we want send Will and Penny over here go back where you belong the children are mine now when he makes a move for the ramp, shoot. I wish the kids weren't standing so close to him. I'm going to tell you once more. I want you to send Will, Penny, and Dr. Smith over here. Your weapons are useless
1: against me, Professor Robinson. My source of power is cosmic energy. If you don't believe me, shoot. Oh, wait. I will give you a better target. I want you accidentally to injure the children.
2: You don't, I will.
0: it took a direct hit in the chest.
4: Yeah, it would have been a good time to have one of those old fashioned guns, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, it really would have.
3: I hadn't seen it with my
0: own eyes,
1: I go before my anger clouds my judgment and I destroy you.
0: John and Don fall back to the cover of some rocks, and they try to quickly come up with some way to stop the kids from being taken away forever. We gotta think of something. As we come to the final break, with time and options running out, suddenly John has a flash of inspiration. Have you ever shot one of these?
2: Oh, sure, as a kid.
0: That slingshot.
2: was if our lasers weren't any good. His staff. The lights on his staff.
0: It's a desperate move, but they are out of options, so...
2: Now get as close as you can. Mr. Keeper!
0: Don moves into position he sort of climbs up on the edge of that rock I did kind of wonder why the keeper didn't notice him sitting there but uh, to distract the keeper John walks out in front and starts to parlay once more
2: I'll make a deal with you
1: you're not in a position to make any offer Suppose I let you have Don and Judy
2: instead of Will and Penny.
0: And we cut back to a shot of Don with that slingshot pulled back, ready to fire, and a close up of that lighted sphere on top of the staff. John shouts for Don to let loose right before we break. We see that sphere is shattered by the stone. When we return from commercial with the staff out of commission, Penny, Will, and Dr. Smith are released from the Keeper's power. The children run to their father, and Smith runs behind the men with guns. And I was kind of expecting the Keeper to be angry here, but instead... He seems calm, and he asks Don about the unusual weapon. And John explains that although it's primitive, it has some special biblical significance. So he gets the whole David and Goliath story there. And and the keeper may be impressed with the slingshot, but he admits that no other animals in the galaxy have given him as much trouble as the earthlings. Is this thing you call freedom so precious? And John answers, he... Well, he gives a long answer, but essentially, yes, it's it's precious. So,
4: <laughs> You know, this thing you're talking about, the biblical answer and the David and Goliath, you know, this whole thing about him being the devil, I think, is really starting to pan out here. And, yeah. And, and you know how the devil in popular lore, if he makes a bargain with you or you beat him at his game, you know, he respects that. He doesn't, you know, just have a temper tantrum and kill you in spite. So he's kind of behaving that way. Sort are of like, okay, well, you know, that's you bested me, and uh, now, mm. you know, it'll be my turn.
0: Mm-hmm. The Keeper finally seems ready to wash his hands of the humans and depart without any of these foolish, foolish creatures. He withdraws to his ship, and the castaways head back to the Jupiter two.
4: It kind of reminds me of that Ed Wood movie, you know, you humans are stupid, 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 <laughs> stupid, you know. But, you know, with Guy Williams and Michael Rennie exuding such a considerable presence, it doesn't matter what the dialogue is like, you're going to buy it no matter what, you know.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Later that night, as the episode is coming to a close, we see the Keeper emerge from his ship, presumably to hunt for some non-human specimens. As he walks out into the night for a stroll, leaving the hatch open, the camera pans across to Smith, crouching behind a large rock with a robot behind him. And when the coast is clear, he turns to his insensitive friend and explains,
4: We're in luck. He's gone. In a few short minutes, with the aid of this magnificent vehicle, we shall say goodbye forever to this unhappy planet. Come along. Follow your leader.
0: (laughs) I love that. Follow your leader. The pair sneaks into the keeper's ship, and when they're safely on board, Doctor Smith pauses for a moment to take it all in, and then he proceeds to issue orders to the robot: "Take off immediately." But the robot says he needs time to study the controls, so Smith gives him a, a whole five seconds—very generous—and the robot reiterates that he needs time to scan and compute those jello molds so he doesn't make a mistake. Yeah, doesn't he know there's always time for jello? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it is surprising how the robot just goes along with. Smith Misky. <laughs> Yeah, but he's
4: a robot he's programmed to obey, even fools like
0: Smith, you know. Mm, I suppose so. So Smith lets his impatience get the better of him. He scolds the robot for making problems out of everything, and he says it's all perfectly simple, and despite the robot's warning, starts to mess with those flashing controls. But instead of blasting off, all it manages to do is start opening the exits to those animal passageways, and suddenly we hear the sounds of growls and roars and strange creature noises of all types. A worried look comes across Smith's space. Hmm, perhaps we better get out while the getting is good. So
4: He actually says, I I may have done something wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So they depart the ship, and Smith starts to berate the robot for dawdling, and then when they take up a little position behind those rocks again, (laughs) poor robot. (laughs) It's all your
4: fault. You missed a golden opportunity to leave this miserable planet.
0: (laughs) But then, suddenly as they're watching the ship, the robot announces danger, extreme danger, all creatures escaping, and a terrified Smith then hides behind the robot. He's not the leader anymore. And then we see monster after monster starting to emerge from the ship and down the ramp into the night. I couldn't help but notice a few familiar faces in that endless parade of creatures. What about you, Kurt? Oh, man, this is
4: that scene (laughs) I distinctly remember as a kid. The same four monsters piling out of the ship over and over again. You see the Cyclops, except now he's shrunk down to normal size. You see the skunk cabbage. see the rubberoid, and he's wearing that same black turtleneck shirt from before, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then of course we see the horn monster with the lit eyeballs from the beginning mm-hmm. of the episode now you know my kid said well, what about the mutant from the sand pit well you can't do the mutant from the sand pit because he would have to wear the bear outfit which the <laughs> horn guy with the light eyes have you know so these same monsters keep coming out repeated in different order to make it look like there are more sometimes we see their feet sometimes we see their upper body sometimes we get a long shot of the group but it's always the same four monsters in different order and now, now remember the keeper said that he had two of every kind so it makes sense for us to see some of these monsters repeated at least once but they repeat these shots at least six different times and that's not even including the shots of the feet you know so even (laughs)
0: as a kid I was sitting there thinking this is just crazy you
4: know Thank God they introduce a new creature at the very end, and it's a doozy.
0: Oh, yeah, because, and I have to say, even though it's it's kind of dragging on and repeated, the music is scary, the growls and the sound effects again are scary. Smith's certainly reacting in a terrified way. I mean, he is scared out of his mind.
4: Yeah, and even though we're only counting four monsters, I mean, supposedly he has a spaceship full of monsters, you know, so they're trying to give the inference that, you know, hundreds of these monsters are are pouring out. They just all happen to look identical. I guess there's a lot of incest going on inside this (laughs) this zookeeper ship.
0: What else are you going to (laughs) do? Time on your hands, right? Just when it couldn't get any worse, as you mentioned, Dr. Smith looks up in horror as this really weird Batman creature comes flying towards his face. Hey, Batman, that's kind of a coincidence, isn't it?
4: Yeah, it's a (laughs) (laughs) Cool flying monster We've never seen this one before Although I'd say He kind of looks more Like an owl man Really It's got a beak You know But it's cool It's very cool Haven't seen it before It freeze frames And you're sitting there going Okay I want to see What happens here
0: Oh, I know. I mean, this is killer. We have to wait a whole other week. Same time, same channel. So since this is a two-parter, our cliffhanger is part of the episode story, which is really neat. So this is all continuous. Kurt, I got to ask you, though, what did you think about The Keeper, part one? Well, the
4: obvious answer is... It's a keeper, right? Yeah. I mean, it had its minor imperfections, as do all science fiction shows. You know, they're bound to have some of those. But the good so outweighs the bad and the ugly that you just don't care. You know, you're blown away. Michael Rennie was worth every dollar of his performance and more. And this is a great example of what exceptional casting can do. Just imagine how different it would have been if someone like Al Lewis, you know, Grandpa Munster, <laughs> was in this episode instead of the one that he is eventually in. It would have yeah. been completely different. <laughs> but Rennie makes the unbelievable believable. And not only that, but actually mesmerizing. You know, I mean, we're not like Penny and, and Will, that kind of mesmerized, But you're fascinated by this performance, and you can't get up and leave during any of it. It's, it's, it just glues you to the, the screen the whole time.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
4: And I like the way that they infer certain things will actually happen without them actually happening, which leaves you on the hook wondering if they're going to happen. What was that line he used? There are some things upon which the eyes should not look. Remember, mm-hmm. he's referring to the monster underneath them. So you're sitting there going, I really want to see that monster. <laughs> and, you know, I let's just say that they do follow up on that in, in the next episode. So a, a yeah. word of warning I was concerned how, in that last scene, when you saw those four monsters marching out over and over and over again, in six different angles and everything, that this is a harbinger of things to come. But be not dismayed, because in the second part of this episode, you're going to see, yeah, you'll see the old, but you'll also see the new monsters and boy, they are really worth it.
0: Oh yeah. The second part is also a keeper. I can't wait to see that, but I agree with everything you said. I I love the fact that they used the Bernard Herrmann music from The Day the Earth Stood Still. I think that really worked well. The only thing that I really wish they hadn't have done is I wish they had resisted using the Cyclops. You know, even as a kid, I think that would have kind of destroyed the illusion that I had because he was a giant, you know, Mm -hmm. and now we're seeing him as just a normal man-sized guy in a suit.
4: Lane, you couldn't tell? That was a baby cyclops.
0: Oh, okay. Now, oh, it all makes sense now. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) But you couldn't help but miss him. I mean, he was really hamming it up. He was was like pausing, winking his one eye at the camera as he (laughs) came (laughs) out. Look, my eye can move. Did I show you my eye can move? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, okay, so be Martin. Maybe his direction's not the most creative as possible, but the performances, like you say, they're just so good, and the story is so good, and it's really fun to see a two-parter. It's a shame they didn't do this more often, because mm-hmm. uh, I definitely want to tune in next week. How am I going to decide between Batman and Lost in Space, though? Well, that's a toughie.
4: Yeah, but back before there were VCRs. But you have to give them credit for this. This is a two-parter, but there's no padding in it. None! what would you cut out? You can't. It's all vital. And the same thing for the second parter. So this is a two-parter that deserves to be a two-parter. Normally, you still have an hour-long program. You want a two-parter, you're going to start seeing a lot of padding, but not in this one.
0: I agree. It just moved along at a clip. There was nothing I felt like was fluff at all. So great. Bottom line, I loved it. Cannot wait to review part two. So we'll look forward to doing that Folks, this wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 17th episode of Lost in Space titled The Keeper Part 2. I can't wait to find out how Dr. Smith is going to save himself this time, Kurt. We
4: know he'll find a way. If anyone can, it'll be him.
0: Yes. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.